that. Ready to get in the word? Turn in your Bibles, please, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6. We get a shift of gear this morning into a different subject matter. All right, here's where we are in the Gospel of Matthew. So we're in the middle of Jesus's first sermon that's being presented by Matthew the Evangelist. And this, being an evangelist, he is proclaiming the gospel. He is proclaiming the good news about who Jesus is, what it is that he did, how we are to respond to him in every area of our life and faith. In the middle of this sermon, this is known as the Sermon on the Mount, and the, the major topics topic that Jesus is pressing into is the kingdom of heaven and the righteousness of God. When he begins this message with the Beatitudes, these are all focused on the work of God's righteousness in our soul, the favor that we have in him. Each one of these character attributes in the Beatitudes ends up being a character attribute of him and who we are in him as we image him back to himself and to our culture around us. Pressed into this idea of defining us as salt and light in this world. This is the idea of the words that we speak and the righteous actions that we pursue. In regards to righteousness, he let us know that he is the fulfillment of righteousness. All of the righteous requirements of the law of the Old Testament, Jesus is the fulfillment of it. But what does his righteousness, again, look like in our lives as we're following him in a relationship, pressed into the idea of murder and anger and adultery and lust and marriage, our oaths, retaliation for those who offend us, not retaliating, loving our enemies rather than hating them. All of these different subject matters are... They're they're encompassed underneath this umbrella of his kingdom and his righteousness that he's working out in us. For the past while, in chapter 6, it shifts gears into same subject matter of his kingdom and righteousness, but into very specific acts of righteousness. So in that, it's an act of righteousness is your giving, your almsgiving, taking care of the poor and the needy and what that looks like. We have spent an extended period of time of this righteous act of prayer, picking through the Lord's Prayer in this outline, topic by topic. But now he's going to shift into the righteous act of fasting. So in every single one of these three, they're all tied and linked together for sure. But what Jesus is getting at ultimately and the actions that we are choosing to do in our relationship with him in in response to him, to people around us, he's telling us to get off the stage. You're not in a theater performance in your relationship with God. You are not to have a theater performance in your relationship to other human beings. So don't be like a hypocrite. And again, a hypocrite is an actor. And when you're on stage as an actor, you put on a different face. You put on a different character. You're pretending to be something and someone that you're not. That's what acting in theater is all about. So Jesus, in your giving and in your prayer and now in your fasting, he's saying, don't be like the hypocrites. So we're picking this up in chapter 6, verse 16. Jesus says, moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrite with a sad countenance. For they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that you do not appear to men to be fasting. But to your father who is in the secret place and your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. So the the outline of don't do this because this is what the hypocrites do. Uh, Do it like this in the way that I'm telling you rather than this public theater position or even in a theater uh, attitude towards God. Your father sees you. He sees you in the secret place. He knows you, and he's going to reward you in that relationship with him openly to you, openly to others, openly for eternity is the idea. That's the same outline that Jesus has taken for all of these behaviors. But now we're going to press into this whole idea of fasting. Now, 
I am not communicating from the position of obedience in this today. I, really, I can't tell you the last time that I had routine fasting in my life, and I can't actually tell you the last time that, I can't tell you the last time God gave me a reason where I felt that he was calling me and directing me to fast for myself or for another person. It's been that long, so three, four years since I fasted. Um, this is a behavior that I've definitely had historically in my relationship with God, where I fasted multiple times a week. There was a season in life where I was fasting every single week. I've done a three-day fast before, a five-day fast before, a seven-day fast before. So I'm not communicating this out of ignorance, but I am communicating from a position of disobedience today. Everybody understand that? So even in this subject matter, I know my calendar, I know what I'm going to be communicating on. I know that fasting is, come up, is going to come up, and I still haven't even made the decision to be obedient in fasting to the Lord in my life right now. Do you know why? Because I don't want to. Is that a good reason? Not at all. I have an unhealthy relationship with food. I don't know what your, I'm, I'm serious. I don't know what your relationship with food is like, but I have an unhealthy relationship with food. I hit, uh, this, I've, I yo-yo my whole life. I hit a point in my body weight when my clothes start getting uncomfortable and I'm too cheap to buy new clothes, so I go on a diet. And I can diet, again, I gotta be in the mood to do it. I was in the mood recently because Julie and I had a vacation. So I've got a date on the calendar. I know that i got to be walking around in the bathing suit, so I'm going to get my beach body ready. And I did the work, and I lost the weight. I put on half the weight back since we were on vacation, and that was in November. Because I have this unhealthy relationship with food. I can tell myself no, and that's what fasting is all about. This is a power dynamic. We've been talking a lot about this, the... the uh, just the power dynamics of different areas in our life that we have with the Lord. He has demonstrated his power and his authority by declaring us to be forgiven of our sins. It is a power dynamic of us to express forgiveness of, uh, towards other people. There's a power dynamic when it comes to being tempted by the devil. The devil is seeking for us to give him authority and power in our life that he ought not to have. So when we stand strong in the power of the Lord and his strength and his might, we are receiving his power to stand against the wiles and the schemes of the devil. So as we talk about fasting this morning, it's a power dynamic. The idea of fasting is you are standing up to yourself and you are telling yourself, no. And again, I can, I can do this in diet and food when I want to. But I got to be, I, my self-justification is I have to be in the mood. Since I came back from vacation, you step into Thanksgiving. I'm blaming this all on Julie and you women for the women's little Christmas cookie dessert social. She makes this pan of fudge buckeyes, you know, the, the peanut butter layer with the chocolate on top. You guys made so much dessert, she came home with the whole pan. Who has to eat the pan? I do. And because I lack self, I'm, this is like dead serious story. I lack self-control, and I know that I do, and I don't want to go back on all this weight that I've just lost. And this is in my head as I'm thinking. But this pan is calling me from the kitchen saying, Blake, eat me. And I'm saying, no, leave me alone. And I said, okay, I'll have a little bit. But I told Julie, like, I have no self-control. Would you put all that in the freezer when the kids come home? They can eat it all. Do you think that it lasted in the freezer? It called to me from the freezer. And I'm serious. I, like, this is my unhealthy relationship with food. I don't want, I'm, I'm now on the sugar high. I haven't had sugar, and now I'm getting all the sugar, and I want the sugar again. So it's calling me to the freezer. So I really like frozen Buckeyes. I didn't know that I did. And this is how it goes down. I hide from Julie. So she thinks that there's this whole pan of frozen Buckeyes in the freezer ready for when the kids come home. And there's one day she's back in the bathroom going to get ready. And I walk back in there. There's one left for you. Go eat it because I've eaten the rest. This is over like a two-week period of time. So in the, I'm expressing all this to say 
that I give my flesh permission to do what I want to do in a variety of ways. And what fasting is all about, it's about telling yourself no in this relationship that we have with food, that in our abundance is very easy to indulge in our own flesh. Um, But this whole instruction over time when it comes to fasting, which is not eating, you can fast from different things, but biblically it's, it's not eating food. You're telling your flesh no for the purpose of drawing near to God. You're telling your flesh no so that you can identify with other human beings. If you know what it's like to have an abundance of food and you don't know what it's like to starve, then you don't know what it's like to walk in the shoes with half of the world's population that doesn't know where their next meal is coming from. So what fasting enables you to do is telling yourself no and having power over yourself and sitting in that intentional suffering As you look to the Lord in your relationship with him, for him to speak to you, to change and transform you, and to work in the lives of other people, and we'll get into these dynamics. But ultimately, that's what the Bible is teaching us. Now, I have a few articles for you if you want to really dig in and do the studying One of these is on how to fast, just walking through the different preparations, different ideas that are associated with it. This is a document from our church in Salt Lake that I've had for a good 20 years. It's a good outline. And then I have a couple of theological articles that will walk you through. Here's where fasting is addressed in the Old Testament and the different historical periods of the Old Testament, different ways that the Jewish culture fasted, walks you into the New Testament context, will walk you through what the early church did and how fasting what it's looked like in the church behavior over the centuries. And I could press into that outline this morning. It's good to do. It's worthwhile to do. It's worthwhile to put forth the effort. It has great instruction. But that's not what I feel like I'm directed to do this morning in the subject. Because when we read through this, even in Jesus' Jesus's instruction here, it's this idea when you fast. It's not if you are going to fast. And it's not the choice that we're making. And like I said, I'm being rebellious in this right now. And you're going to ask me next week and how I'm doing. And I'm going to tell you I probably started because I'm to be a good boy to the Lord and start telling my flesh no because I need to. Um, But it's when you fast. But in our instruction that we have from the Bible, it's really thin. Like you really kind of want to shake it out and say, is there any more instruction? Why? How? What's the purpose? And those kinds of things. We're going to go into Isaiah 58 in just a minute, which is the only Old Testament passage that gives us God's heart in regards to fasting. When we sit in the New Testament, it's this couple of sentences from Jesus. And this is all the instruction that we have in the New Testament. We see Jesus being uh, tested in his own ministry. So John the Baptist sends some of his disciples to Jesus and says, Hey, we're fasting and the Pharisees are fasting. Why aren't your disciples fasting? And the interesting thing in that is Jesus has a teaching there. He says when he leaves, when he ascends to heaven, essentially, that his disciples will fast. But Jesus links that idea with what fasting looks like for us as his followers is something that's new. Because that's the whole teaching that he presses into in regards to the old wineskin and the new wineskin. The old, the Old Testament, the old religion, the old ways. Those things, they're done, and Jesus is the fulfillment of that. There's a new relationship. There is a new wine that needs to be poured into new wineskins. Therefore, that fasting relationship with him is going to take on different ideas and processes and realities in a relationship with him than it had in an Old Testament religious behavior, even though the ideas cross over for sure. You see fasting a couple of times in the book of Acts. But usually it's associated with Paul. Paul was a Pharisee. He was a good Jewish boy. Good Jewish boys and good Pharisees of the day fasted on Mondays and Thursdays. 
as the church progresses after, you know, Paul passes away and the apostles pass away, the early church presses into, well, we don't want to take on Jewish behavior, so we're going to fast on Wednesdays and Fridays instead of Mondays and Thursdays because we want to make sure there's a distinction. That's all that we have. So in the New Testament, we're going to press into a couple of different ideas because for me, when Jesus tells us that we're to anoint our head and to wash our face, the idea of anointing and washing, these are both imperatives in the text. That's what I really focused in on and drilled into. And we're going to press into a couple of other passages in the New Testament that are really going to bring out this idea that will link directly to fasting that I think will be helpful. But in this instruction and not being a hypocrite, Jesus uses a play on words for disfigure and appear. He says they disfigure their faces. The word for disfigure is literally they destroy their faces. So it's not just putting on makeup and covering your face with ashes and dirt. He's using a play on words here, and he's using hyperbole. He's using extreme language to make people just understand how ridiculous this is. But he's essentially saying when you fast... Don't walk up to your brother and say, hey, would you just like bash my face in and just totally disfigure it so that everybody knows on the outside that I'm fasting? That's the language that he's using. It's hyperbole. It's extreme exaggeration. But the religious of Jesus' day, it's a very, it's this outward religious pious action. If you're a good Jew, you fast on Mondays and you fast on Thursdays and everybody knows about it. So I want you to turn back into Isaiah 58, because in Isaiah 58, God is correcting the culture through Isaiah 700 years before Christ is speaking his words, and he's correcting them in the exact same way. And this is major teaching. This, this whole idea of fasting, of not eating, it's not a diet thing. It's not just between you and food. The Lord has something to teach you. He has something to transform you. He has something to speak to you in regards to his relationship with you in his righteousness, in that relationship, as he sends you forward into the culture. So Isaiah 58 says, cry aloud and spare not. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. A trumpet, it's a warning sound. Tell my people their transgressions, their crime, and the house of Jacob, their sins, how they've missed the mark of God's holiness. Verse 2 says, yet, so God's saying, you know, sound the trumpet, tell my people about their crimes and their sins. But there's this yet statement, they're seeking me, God, daily. They delight to know my ways. They're acting as a nation that's doing righteousness, but they're not. But they're pretending like they are is the language. And that they're acting like they did not forsake the ordinance, the command of their God. They ask of me the ordinance of justice, and they take delight in approaching God. So this is all this religious behavior that they're justifying who they are before God in their own way rather than being justified and righteous before God in his way. In verse 3, they're asking God this question, why have we fasted, they say, and you haven't seen? Why have we afflicted our souls and you take no notice? This idea of afflicting their souls the only command in the Old Testament is in Leviticus 16. It's the only time where God commands the Jews to fast. And it's associated with the Day of Atonement, one time per year. And the language that's used is that they would afflict their souls on this particular day. And that's why they're saying, why, do, what, why am I going to do this if you take no notice, God? In fact, in the day of your fast, you find pleasure... And you exploit all your laborers is God's response. Indeed, you fast for strife and debate, all your religious arguments, why you're right, why your way is right. You know, and you can sit in this. When you fast, is it for one meal? A lot of people will fast just for a singular meal. Is it just food or is it food and water? How long? Uh, some will say that fasting for a day means it's between, it's only during the hours where it's light. 
So you can wake up and you can have breakfast. You're not going to eat through the day when it's light. And then once the sun goes down, you can have dinner. Others are going to say, no, a Jewish day, a proper day, according to God's ordinance, is evening and morning, which we get out of Genesis chapter 1. So that means from the time that the sun goes down tonight until the sun goes down tomorrow night, that's your proper period of fasting. So you get into all of these, well, what, what's legitimate? What is going to make God do what you want it gets down to all this strife, all this dispute, all this contention, and it's all junk. It has nothing to do with the heart of God. So you're doing it for your own ways, your own strife, your own debate. You're striking people with the fist of wickedness physically, verbally, mentally, spiritually, you will not fast as you do this day to make your voice heard on high. Is this, is it, is this a fast that I've chosen? A day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it for the purpose of bowing his head like a bulrush, which just is a, you know, you think of a heavy reed that's bent over. So is it for the whole purpose for you to bend over? Is it for you to, to spread out sackcloth and ashes? So sackcloth is going to be itchy, uncomfortable clothing of the poor, throwing ashes, right? This is all disfiguring, putting on the show, all the theatrics that are on the outside. Would you call this a fast, an acceptable day to the Lord? I mean, you sit in many of the teachings today, even in the church today. Th these would be the instructions for what a proper fast would look like. But God gets to his heart in verse 6. Is this not the fast that I have chosen? Here's the whole purpose of why. And here's what it does. It looses the bonds of wickedness in your soul and in the souls of others and in the souls of your culture. Often a fast is a response to something that just happened in your life or in the culture. There's something that is horrific, something that is causing mourning, something is broken, something is out of sorts with the Lord and you know it. And you're seeking to afflict yourself and to be afflicted with your community together in pursuit of the Lord's will, his rebuilding, his restoration in you and in us is the idea. Is it not to loose the bonds of wickedness? Does evil have a grip on your heart? Does food have an unhealthy grip on your heart, Blake? Yeah, it does. All right. So now's once a time, another time in my life to have victory over that subject. It's to undo heavy burdens. How do you feel weighed down in this life? Your sins, your struggles. There's a way of telling your flesh no as you pursue the Lord and he speaks to you and he responds to you in those moments. There's a way spiritually that he undoes these heavenly bur heavy burdens, not off of your own back, but also off the back of others. Is it not to let the oppressed go free? When you look at the culture, you look at the idea of justice and righteousness and how God wants us to interact with others or to seek to help those who are oppressed, oppressed spiritually, oppressed physically, to help them be free. Is it not for the purpose that you break every yoke? This idea that you're linked to something that you ought not to be linked to and there is a the power in this dynamic to loose the bonds, undo heavy burdens, let the oppressed go free and break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry? And this is that idea. You now know what it's like to be hungry. Doesn't it give you compassion to those who don't even have the option to eat today? That it's going to do something in you to help you recognize the plight of others. That in your righteous acts, you'll be there to help stand in the gap as the Lord gives you opportunity. And that you bring to your house the poor who are cast out. When you see the naked, that you cover them. And not hide yourself from your own flesh. So all of this, again, there's a... There is a telling yourself no and having power over yourself in this moment 
as you're pursuing the Lord, that he's really granting us all of this freedom, this understanding and direction forward in your own life personally or in our life together as a community. And then in verse eight, the promise, then, then your light's gonna break forth like the morning. Just like Jesus is teaching, you are salt, you are light. Your words and your deeds and your relationship with other human beings as you're imaging me to them, then your light shall break forth like the morning. Your healing shall spring forth speedily. There's a link between fasting and washing and anointing and healing. All this imagery that plays out in different places. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. Now this is not because I do A, B, and C in my religious ritual magic formula. Now God's going to listen to me. What God is expressing is I listen to those who pursue me according to my righteousness and my truth. And here he's just expressed, here is what fasting is about. Here's what I want to do in you. Here's what I want to do in your community. And when you pursue me in obedience and truth and love and trust and faith, I am going to hear. And there's multiple places in the Bible where God says, you think that you're coming to me and all of your religion but you're doing and you're saying and you're thinking and living in a way that's contrary to me, you think that I'm going to listen to you and respond to you? I hear you. I see you. And you're not living in obedience. Therefore, you're not going to be free. I'm going to keep you where you are until you cry out to me in truth. So again, God is saying, as we run to him in truth, as we run to him according to his will, as he tells us to, there he is, and all of his glory, all of his majesty, and all of his forgiveness, and all of his power for freedom, for cleansing, for you, and for those around you. Awesome promises. If you take away the yoke from your midst, you do it. Take away the pointing of the finger at each other. Take away speaking of wicked, speaking wickedness. And that's not just being vulgar. That could be, you know, uh, a speech that's just filled with pride and arrogance. And the, you know, you're all broken down and your life stinks because you're in disobedience to God. And my life is wonderful because I'm holier than thou. That's, take that kind of speaking of wickedness out of you. If you extend your soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul. Then your light shall dawn in the darkness and your darkness shall be as the noonday. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought and strengthen your bones and you shall be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Those from among you shall build the old waste places you shall raise up the foundation of many generations and you shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets or the restorer of paths to dwell in. Pretty cool promises, huh? And again, God's not expressing here's a religious ritual. He's expressing here's who I am and here's who you are in me. And as you approach me, in fasting, in prayer, in worship. Here's the purpose of this religious behavior. It's not for the stage performance. But this again, this is 700 years before Jesus. As the Jews are cast out of the land by the Babylonians because of their disobedience to God, when they come back into the land, we watch fasting take on different ways of obedience to the Lord, and then we watch it begin to take on different religious ritual that ends up being empty of God's heart, and that's what Jesus is addressing. Now, when it comes to Jesus's direct teaching for us, all right, don't be like this. We've sat in God's language here in Isaiah, don't be like this. Here's what I want you to be like. Now, we're going to sit in Jesus's instruction, his instruction to us. I want you to anoint your head and I want you to wash your face. These are the imperatives. In the direct language, it's when you fast, take a bath. 
take a shower. Put on your clean clothes. Don't let anybody else know. This is between you and the Lord. God sees you, and he'll reward you and answer you according to his will. But there's more to these imperatives. So turn to Luke 7. And this is going to give us an image of anointing that I think that expresses Jesus' heart in the instruction for us in fasting. Here's a heart that he's looking for us to image to him and to image to each other. So this is Luke chapter 7, verse 36. Pulls out both the ideas of anointing and washing. One of the Pharisees, so right, this is one of the ones that Jesus would be correcting. Paul himself, a Pharisee, we watch all these interactions between the Pharisees struggling with who Jesus is and the things that he was teaching. So a Pharisee asked Jesus to come over for dinner. And he goes to the Pharisee's house and he sits down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask. This, this uh, It's like a pinkish, creamish stone flask that's filled with this fragrant oil. Probably a very valuable possession for her, probably associated with her dowry as a bride. And she stands at his feet, at Jesus' feet behind him, and she's weeping. It says she began to wash his feet with tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself saying, This man, if he was really a prophet, he'd know who and what manner of woman this is who was touching him, for she's a sinner. Again, you have to sit in the imagery. Here's Jesus as a religious teacher. This is, this is, you know, into his ministry. People know who he is. He's performing miracles. They're astonished by his teaching. He's ruffling feathers. And here's a religious guy that invites another religious guy to dinner. And in this religious meeting around the table, not a time to fast, a time to feast, you have a woman in the community. Everybody knows who she is and what her sin is. She's not invited to the table. She's not invited as a guest. But as a follower, paying attention to what's going on in the community, paying attention to what Jesus has done, what he's done for other people, the words that are being expressed in his teaching, there is something about Jesus that has radically captured this criminal sinful, wicked, unclean woman's mind and heart. And she takes this possession, this thing, in this position of worship, and you watch the emotion. Now, a lot of guys would reject this, you know, you're not a crier and that kind of stuff. Then press into the idea of honor, of loyalty. This woman is bending her soul in loyalty and honor to a man that she sees as the definition of, like, here's my freedom. Here, here's the restorer of my breaches. Here's the opportunity for me to be forgiven and to be cleansed from all of my sins. So not only does the culture know that she's a sinner, she knows that she's a sinner. And link this to fasting. So she's not at the table feasting. She's at Jesus' feet in her emotion, in recognition of all of her gaps and all of her filth. And she's pouring out her soul in worship. She's pouring out her soul in confession that the religious guy at the table is looking at who she is and what she's doing. It's like she doesn't have a right to be here. She doesn't have a leg to stand on. If this man were really a prophet, he wouldn't let her in this room, not even close to touching her. See the contrast of worship and religion? And then Jesus, his response, Jesus answers, says, hey, Simon, I've got something to say to you. 
So Simon says, teacher, say it. Verse 41. There's a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, Simon, which of, which of them loves him more? So Jesus is just using a, a, a tool of the day that teachers would use of here's this parable, here's this scenario to get to the point. Tell me, Simon, who do, who do you think's going to feel... Who's going to have more appreciation? Who's going to have more love for the forgiveness? The 500 denarii or the 50 denarii individual? Simon says, well, I assume, I suppose, the the one who was forgiven more. Everybody agree that? Seems like the natural conclusion. Seems like the conclusion, conclusion that Jesus is getting at. So he says, you've rightly judged. You've rightly evaluated my parable that I just presented, Simon. Good boy. And he, look at this, he turns away from Simon and he turns to the woman that's at his feet, that's expressed all of this worship, emotion, faith in the moment. But as he's looking at the woman, he's speaking to Simon at the other end of the table. And he says, do you see this woman? Do you really see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. This is a cultural standard. You're wearing sandals, walking around in the dust. You enter in somebody's house. Clean off your feet. Simon, the Pharisee, no water for Jesus' feet. But this woman, she's washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, not not even a greeting, welcome into your home. You invited me to your table And you're a pathetic host culturally. Jesus is pointing out this guy's cultural neglect as a host. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time that I came in. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore, I say to you, her sins... Which are many, forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. He's been looking at this woman into her eyes this whole time as, as he's been speaking to Simon. And now he speaks to this woman. Your sins are forgiven. That heavy burden that that woman walked into that room with, And rather than wanting the food that's at the table, neglecting her flesh, neglecting her treasure, and is just pouring out worship, pouring out confession, looking to be healed, looking to be restored, looking to be loosed from wickedness, looking for that heavy burden to be rolled off. She got exactly what she was looking for and seeking to anoints the one who ultimately is anointing her with himself and with forgiveness. Those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Again, just looking at his nature, his character, he says to the woman, woman, your faith has saved you. Your faith has rescued you. Again, we talked about yesterday, Lord, deliver me from the evil one. Rescue me. Cause me to be put into a position of safety and refuge and protection in my relationship with you as the beings of wickedness are attacking me, as my own flesh is even you know, trying to trip myself up and this whole world is trying to trip me. Woman, your faith expressed in this righteous action has caused you to be safe, forgiven, saved. My authority, Jesus, I am declaring this over you. So go is the command in peace. Everybody in this community knows and labels her as a sinner. Her creator, her God, just labeled her 
has forgiven and saved. Now go in that peace and that joy. Purpose, imagery of what fasting is to bring about in our soul as we deny ourselves for specific reasons, as the Lord is calling us to that, that this is the way that we are walking out of that conversation and interaction with him as we pour out our souls to him in different ways, in loyalty, looking for that forgiveness, looking for that cleansing, that that release from the fast is God has spoken, God has rescued. Now go in peace. Second image is from John chapter 13. So turn there. And this presses into the idea of that washing. So not only anoint ourselves and to be anointed by God, but to wash ourselves and allow God to wash us. So John chapter 13, we're jumping into the evening of Jesus' arrest. It says, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. What a declaration. Verse 2, supper being ended. So here's this feast. They're stuffed. Supper, Supper being ended, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going to God. Now, listen to, listen to all this declaration about Jesus that we just read through. He's come from God. He was sent from God. He is God in the flesh, tabernacling in, in the flesh. He loved those who the Father had given to them, to the end, to obedience. All this declaration. He knew that he came from God. He knew that he was going back to God. All of this declaration about him. Here is God in the flesh. Jesus rises from supper. He lays aside his garments that he's wearing. And he takes this linen towel for this purpose. And he girds himself with it, wraps himself in a way. And puts himself in this position of a servant. After that, pours water into a basin. And he's kneeling down and washing his disciples' feet. So sit in all of this imagery as Jesus being sent from the Father to come and be a servant to serve all. Not only has he laid aside that divinity to take on human flesh to begin with, now we're watching him even put off his garments as teacher, as rabbi, as this person that all the disciples are following as a teacher and a rabbi. He takes off these outer garments and these clothes. And here he's clothed himself in this this linen towel of humility for the singular purpose of bowing on his knees as the disciples are they're reclining at a table, Eastern culture, they're reclining on their elbows and their feet are pointed away from the food. And Jesus is kneeling foot by foot, going around the table, washing the dirt off the feet of his boys. So it says, he began to wipe them with the towel, which with he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter. Peter said, Lord, are you washing my feet? Gotta love Peter. No filter. He says what's on his mind. Jesus answered and said to him, what I, Peter, what I'm doing to you right now, I know you don't understand, but you will. You'll get it, Peter. And Peter says, you are never going to wash my feet. This, this is super awkward for him. This is awkward for all of the disciples. As Jesus is going through this action, you have to run the film in your head because I guarantee there's been a bunch of chatter at the table. This is a Passover feast. They've gone through the reading of different portions of the Old Testament. They've sung songs. As they're watching him get up from the table, lay aside his garments, they know what he is doing. And I guarantee that there is silence at the table. There's guilt. There's conviction. There's lack of understanding. We love Peter because he's the only one that's got enough courage to say what's on his mind. 
what are you doing? I'm washing your feet. You don't understand, but you, you will understand. I understand. You're not washing my feet, is what Peter says. And then Jesus says, if I do not wash you, you have no part. You have no share in me if you're not washed, Peter. And Peter, again, unfiltered. Well, don't, don't just wash my feet. Give me a bath. Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my, my head. My, my hair's dirty, Lord. My fingernails are dirty. Just scrub me down. If that's what, in, if that's what it's going to take for me to have a part in you, I want you. Do whatever it takes. And Jesus says, Peter, he who's bathed, he's, you've already had your bath. You're washed. You only need to wash your feet. But you're completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore, he said, you are not all clean. So, when he had washed their feet, puts aside this basin with the dirty water in it now, lays aside this, uh, this filthy linen towel as he's scrubbed their dirty feet and they're all clean. He's put his garments back down. He sits back down at the head of the table. And they're all thinking. They're processing. It's still quiet at the table. And Jesus is looking at them all eye to eye. Do you understand what I've done? Do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord. And you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who sent, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed, fortunate, happy are you if you do them. I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me and has lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. Most assuredly, I say to you that he who receives whomever I send receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me, the Father. In this example of Jesus washing the disciples' feet, he's saying that if I as your master have done this to you, you are not greater than me. I have given you an example. So in the image of washing, I really feel as I link that with fasting in Jesus' instruction, there's, a, there's that part of fasting that's between you and your father. There's a time where fasting is all about getting you right with God. And it's something that gives an extra power to prayer. It gives an extra seriousness I told you before, I've had many times in my life where I press in and out of having this behavior of fasting. I always stop doing it when it just becomes the, I'm not eating anymore. It's just the only reason I'm fasting is because I'm just not eating. It has nothing to do with my relationship with the Lord. So the emphasis, again, in fasting and the link that Jesus is giving to in anointing is you one-on-one -on -one with him. In this example with washing Again, this isn't, I'm not, I'm not being like dogmatic here. I'm just linking these words of the, the emphasis that I feel that Jesus gave to go and anoint our head and to wash our face. But it deals with that relationship of fasting with others. I've washed your feet. I've saved you. I've forgiven you. I've cleansed you. And I'm doing that same thing in the life of others. And this is what I want you to get up and go and gird yourself as a servant in the life of other people. And a way of serving other human beings is to tell yourself no. As you seek to engage God in prayer for them. As you seek to engage God to um, give you the words to say. But there's, there's a dynamic of prayer and fasting that I don't get in the sense of I don't have this. I don't have God's definition of why it works. I just know it's what he's told me to do. 
And when I pray for another person, I'm told that God will hear my prayer. And that means that sometimes God will violate the sovereign will of another human being to break through whatever barriers they have going on. Do you like that? I love it. We sit in this, you know, did God choose me or did I choose him? He chose you. He created you. Anything that you know about him is because of his divine intervention in your life. He pursues you. He pursues every single human being in this world. I guarantee that there are people who prayed for me before I even knew them, before they even knew me, that allowed God, that gave them that power, that authority to, to uh, um, violate my sovereign will over my wants and my wishes, and I praise God for that. Because in my stubbornness and my flesh and my stupidity and my pressing into the lies of the devil in this world, I'd still be pursuing the path of destruction if it were not for the divine intervention of God. And not only do I know for sure and confidently that that is a response of God in my life, not just of his sovereign will, but other people praying for me, I guarantee that fasting was a part of those prayers to one degree or another, whoever may have been on that back journey of my own life. I know that the Lord has called me to fasting in different times in different ways for different purposes for myself and my own relationship with him and on behalf of other people. And I've watched God divinely intervene on that. Does that mean it's not eating for a day, for a meal? Does that mean it's more like a Daniel fast where I'm refusing the luxuries and the delicacies of the world and I'm only going to eat disgusting vegetables? Whatever God calls you to. It's, there's no magic formula. There's no, if you do A, B, and C, God is going to then do X, Y, and Z. It is all based upon a relationship with him. He wants you. He loves you. He's there to free you, to help you be free. And he's there to not only reveal himself to you, but he's there to use you to reveal himself to others as you serve others in the name of Jesus. And to me, that's what fasting is all about. Worship team, come on up. As they make their way up here, just final comment, I'm going to ask you to keep me accountable in this with the Lord. I don't know what he's calling me to do, how. I don't know if it's a meal. I don't know if it's a day. Um, I know, you know, I'm just, I'm fleshing out in my flesh just with food right now because I feel that rebellious aspect of me. But I don't want my rebellion with food to flow out in rebellion in other ways of my life. So part of it, yeah, I'm just recognizing here we are in scripture, in Jesus' instruction to fasting. And I don't want to go down the road without asking Lord specifically, Lord, what do you want this to look in my life right now? What do you want this to look like in our congregation right now? I don't have an answer for that, but I'm asking you to keep me accountable. Come and ask me next week. Come and ask me when you see me, and I trust in the Lord that I'll be able to convey to you, hey, this is what I think the Lord is doing, why he's doing it. Not so that you can see my theatrics, but so that you can walk alongside of me as your brother in my relationship with the Lord and I can walk alongside of you and whatever the Lord's calling you to do, making himself known to you and making himself known through you. Amen? That's worship. Communion table is open to you.